Bowshield wasn't satisfied with any of the bike lubes on the market, so they engineered their own. Their research proved that none of the Teflon, silicone, or synthetic formulas held up when exposed to dusty, dirty, and muddy conditions. For that reason, Bowshield T9 is designed to offer long-term lubrication and protection in any environment. Bowshield T9 waterproofs your bike chain, lubricates cables, and prevents rust with its effective all-in-one formula. The paraffin-based lube flushes out dirt in old lubricants, displaces moisture, and penetrates moving parts. Then it dries to a clean, continuous wax film that performs better than Teflon and lasts up to 200 miles. Bowshield T9 is designed to resist picking up dust, dirt, or mud, which makes it a good choice for all riding conditions. This month, Bowshield is giving away a free prize pack to a lucky listener. Go to singletracks.com slash Bowshield to enter and visit Bowshield.com to learn more or click the links in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is Jason Fennell. Jason is a mountain biker who works with the Scaola Foundation, an organization that's working with boys and girls clubs locations to start on-site mountain bike programs. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate you guys uh, taking time to have us on and talk to us. Well, how did you get started with mountain biking? Yeah, so, uh, you know, biking in general, I lived in a... Um, you know, a pretty neat little neighborhood, I had a bunch of kids. And so I was on a bike at an early age. Right. But I, mm-hmm. I you know, riding around the neighborhood, going to the pool, basketball games, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, everything with the neighborhood kids. But then, um, uh, I, I want to say, I guess the time I, I, I was probably 10, 11, maybe my dad got a job and he, uh, with light speed titanium in, uh, Udall, Tennessee. And, yeah. and he was their VP of sales he didn't really have any mountain biking, uh, or cycling background before that, but huh. he was friends with family that owned the company and, uh, they knew he had a pretty strong sales background. And so, uh, they talked for a little bit and then he got hired. And next thing you know, I was, you know, being drug along and tagged along <laughs> with him and was sort of plunged into this world of cycling. And it was just, you know, something that, that I had no idea existed. And I, I just went from, I guess, no level of awareness to probably the highest level of awareness <laughs> yeah. that, that you could get, um, you know, from traveling to the Norba national races, the old pro, um, circuit stuff back in the nineties, um, to having, you know, light speed, they were in the early nineties, it was a pretty high end tech titanium was pretty high end stuff. And so, Highly sought after, um, you know, even the big names, John Tomac and Tinker Juarez and all those guys, they, you know, they tended to gravitate towards our booth and, mm. um, got a lot of exposure to, to those types and, and saw, you know, traveled to a bunch of races and, uh, got to race some, uh, you know, real early as a kid and, and kind of, it was just a, a uh, a baptism, so to speak of, uh, you know, by fire, because it was, <laughs> I, I went from just being like every other kid in the world that, that rides their bike kind of, you know, part transportation, part fun went from that to, um, you know, riding races in the Pisgah mountains and in, in North Carolina <laughs> and pretty much did it overnight. Right. Yeah. Um, always had definitely had sort of a traditional sports background, baseball, basketball, uh, football, wrestling, and, and definitely was very competitive, I guess, at everything that I did. And so, um, even though I didn't really have, uh, uh, a lot of training time or experience at, at that age and even on up into, you know, 15, 16 years old, I, 
anything I showed up to, I, I definitely wanted to win, you know, I wanted mm-hmm. to do my best. And so, uh, uh, you know, but real quickly you got to see sort of the gaps between the kids that, that made it a lifestyle and that's what they were doing. They were riding every day and then sort of the part-timers, which is really what I was, but, um, just an incredible experience. Got to, uh, really be immersed in, in all of cycling culture pretty much at the highest levels and uh, had all kinds of access and really cool experiences and probably was, you know, the only 11-year-old or 12-year-old at the time that had a, you know, a custom uh, Okoe, you know, uh, titanium mountain bike tricked out with, you know, the XTR and and rock shocks and all, all the cool stuff of the 90s, uh, you know, as a just completely uh, did not understand what I had until many, many years later when uh, my dad was no longer with the company and I've tried to, you know, buy my own first roll bike. It's like, man, this stuff's expensive. So, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But yeah, been around it a long time and um, it, it's been a big part of my life and uh, uh, really thankful for those times and those experiences. And it, it certainly sort of shaped the way that I, I guess I chose my recreation time, uh, moving forward for the rest of my life. So, um, it, it's a big part of, of, um, you know, who I am and, and what I enjoy and, and yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Well, I, I'm interested too. I mean, you don't hear a lot of people, uh, like your dad who sort of go into the bike industry without really being like, you know, really, I don't know, lack of a better word, enthusiastic, or, you know, they're just people who are already into cycling. And I'm curious to know, did your dad like get into it once he joined the company? Did he start riding recreationally or was that just something that like he kept separate, but that you picked up on? No, no, he definitely was involved. You know, um, he would do races too. I think he raced, you know, mainly sport class and that sort of thing. And I, I guess kind of realized what a jump there was between sport and expert and, <laughs> and then, and then just as big of a jump, if not more so from expert to pro. And, um, uh, but he was, you know, kind of like me, he had more of a traditional sports background, but look, it's impossible to be around that stuff and, and not, you know, get bitten by the bug and the enthusiasm. And it's just, it's a, you know, an entire subculture or culture, I guess at this point. And, uh, um, no, he was definitely, he was eating up with it. He still rides today. Uh, even though he's been out of, out of the industry for quite some time now, but, um, yeah, you know, it's, it was, it became very quickly a big part of, of sort of our family lifestyle and what we did. And back in the early nineties, I guess it was really probably before Sorba chapters really began to sort of mobilize especially in this area and and you know we didn't have massive amounts of trail without you know pretty substantial travel when we wanted to ride it was it was for the most part it was load up and hop in the car and go to national forest which was you know an hour away and there was some single track but it certainly wasn't necessarily super well designed and well built and all that kind of stuff whereas you know now in the last 10 15 20 years uh what Emba and Sorba and certainly our, our local, the Northwest Georgia Sorba chapters and then the Chattanooga Sorba chapters have just, they've covered this area. This area is blanketed in just amazing trail systems. Um, I would say, well, actually I looked it up earlier. I, I think we have five major trail systems that they have developed uh, within probably a 15 mile radius of downtown Chattanooga and over 75 miles of single track. Um, you know, and that, that was something we didn't have in the early nineties. If we were going to ride something local, we were probably poaching it. And, uh, <laughs> right. Um, 
and you know nowadays uh, actually some of those some of those places that we poached are now you know they're part of the the sort of systems but um but yeah it's it, it definitely was something he adopted and, and adapted to and and you know he i think he fell in love with it as much as i did and uh, to this day, he still watches the tour and keeps up with that. And, wow, cool! And uh, um, you know, me too. It, it became a big part of our lives. Cool. Well, tell us about the Scaola Foundation. How did it get started, and what's sort of the mission? Yeah, so um, it got started after I graduated college. I uh, uh, was doing some nonprofit fundraising work for a private school in Chattanooga called Macaulay School, and. Um, was there for five or six years and then took a job as sort of the head of the development office, the fundraising department at the Boys and Girls Club in Northwest Georgia, uh, which is uh, was based out of Dalton, Georgia. And uh, we had a particular donor there that uh, had given uh, some money to uh, buy bikes for the kids, uh, to for the clubs to keep on site uh, and a trailer to take the kids to a local trail system is about five miles away. Uh, actually it was less than that. I'm going to say it was probably closer to two or three miles away. But, um, uh, so when I showed up, that was sort of already in place. And I, I saw the kids, the daily access to the kids that we had. And, and, uh, you know, it was 150, 200 kids a day that, that were in that, that particular club mm-hmm. and, um, the trailers and taking or the trailer and taking the kids, to that mountain bike park. It was called Raisin Woods Mountain Bike Park. And I just, I thought, wow, this is super cool. Um, and that was in the summer program that we did that. In the summer, they had the kids from basically 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., right? So uh, pretty much 12-hour day. And I noticed, I guess, that once we transitioned to the, to the fall, the after-school program, we only had the kids from like 3 to 5.30, 6.30, right, at the, at the latest. So your window of opportunity to load kids up in a van, drive them down the road, load the bikes out, get the bikes out, ride, you know, for an hour or so. It was, it was greatly diminished. Yeah. And so it, it realized pretty quickly, Hey, the, as cool as the mountain bike program was, it was something that uh, was super seasonal within the boys and girls club model. Mm-hmm. One day while kind of walking the back property scratching my head we had about seven acres at the time which is uh you know it, it, for for a an urban club what's categorized as an urban boys and girls club it, it's a lot of land mm-hmm. but i kind of looked over at the bikes i looked over at this land that was unused and i went and talked to my boss and said hey we need to build something here where the kids can ride the bikes mm. here at our club yeah. on site and we can do it every day after school and this could be uh, you know, part of our programming, just like anything else that we do. And he said, well, uh, you know, how are you going to get it done? I said, well, let me, let me go visit uh, the local Sorba chapter and uh, talk to these guys and see if they have an interest and would help me build it. And if they'd help me build it, um, that's, that would really be the end of it. Yeah. We could, you know, we could ride the bikes every day and, and kind of go from there. So reached out to Sorba folks back then. It was Rick Moon. It was Jenny Dashinger. It was Gay Rice, uh, Conrad Fernandez, um, they were kind of running the show and, and most of them still are actually down in, in Northwest Georgia Sorber. But, um, 
they invited me to come to the meeting and kind of give my pitch and I gave my pitch and they said, Hey, we'll get back to you uh, next week. And they called me back and said, yep, let's do it. We'll bring, you know, 10, 12 volunteers and we'll make some sort of a small little pump track. So we did that. Oh, cool. It took us two, three days. We did it all by hand, you know, shovels and, <laughs> wow. and, and wheelbarrows. It was, it was a lot. I don't, I don't know that any of us quite understood what we'd broken. Up. They probably <laughs> did. I didn't. But we got the local bike shop involved at the time. It was Bear Creek Bike, Shane Adams, who was uh, the owner of that. And uh, it just got a lot of support. And over two, three days, we, we got it done. And uh, the next year, um, that course just it, it got all kinds of riding. It was uh, We were blown away. We couldn't, you know, we started seeing user-created trails on the rest of the property, which <laughs> for the most part was grown up and not functional. You know, you had... Some people were using it to to dump some washing machines and some mattresses and all kinds of nonsense back there. Well, we kind of put our heads together the following year and said, "Hey, let's uh, let's do it again." And then somebody had a bright idea of, "Why don't we get a bobcat this time?" So we talked about Boston to running the bobcat, and I mean, we we tripled the size the next year. Wow! Uh, and we did that over two days, you know, and then and then that carried on, and basically we did you know one work day a year over the period of about 10 years. And before we knew it, we had, you know, five acres of pretty well-developed trail system in place. Um, we had, you know, it, it's sort of a mix of uh, BMX and pump track. And then we had a perimeter track that we put in with gravel uh, that we compacted. That It was about three-tenths of a mile, and we could run time trials and those, those types of things on that. But it ended up becoming... You know, next to probably the homework help program that we did every day, it became probably the most marketable thing we did um, and got a lot of support. Next thing you know, the local cyclist in the in the local cycling community got folks that didn't even have mountain bikes, but just were were road, roadies. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they would hear about it and they would want to come over and see. And next thing you know, that person was a donor and they would send in, you know, an annual check of, uh, supporting it and saying, Hey, let's keep these kids riding bikes. And, um, it just, it kind of blossomed from there. And, and the uh, family that, that funded it all from the get go, the Scaola family, Scaola foundation, um, they saw this and we were really pleased with, Hey, you know, we, we thought this was just kind of going to kind of be like a summer thing where the kids got to, ride in the summer and now they're literally riding every day what if we put some more funding behind this and we tried to take this model and expand regionally and then what if we try and take this model and expand nationally and uh, you know they they asked for uh, a little bit of help I guess from from our end and trying to get uh the next club up and running, which ended up being in, in, uh, Knoxville area, Tennessee. And, uh, a year after that, they came to me, uh, who at the time was, I was still an employee of, of the boys and girls club, but they came to me and said, Hey, uh, we want you to try and help us grow this program. And, and we want to do about four of these a year. And, um, and so, you know, we've been sort of growing ever since right now we're in, uh, I want to say 12 different locations. We're in um, Georgia, Tennessee, uh, and Alabama. And then right now we're actually in the process of reviewing uh, an application from Florida. So we may have our first uh, Florida club this year if, if everything goes well. And, uh, you know, our goal is to help bring daily access 
to mountain biking, two kids to the Boys and Girls Club model. It just makes a lot of sense, right? You have when you when you partner with an organization like the Boys and Girls Club, they have the facilities, they have the kids, they have the time and the structure and the transportation and the insurance and all the additional things that you have to have for a program like this to exist on a daily basis. If we were to try and construct just a youth mountain biking program that, uh, you know, that encompass these hours, you're talking about massive budgets required yeah. for something like that. You know, typically most of the clubs that we work with have between a half a million to a two and a half, three million dollar annual operating budget. Mm-hmm. You know, and most of that is overhead for, for staffing to have folks uh, with the kids every day and, and insurance and utilities and all those things that if you really want to have a viable program, you have to have that. Um, it's very difficult to run something that is um, a daily operating uh, model. It's very difficult to run something like that purely on volunteer hours, right? Like you, you, you have to be able to pay staff to be there with the kids. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, you know, the family just saw that, hey, it makes a lot of sense to try and implement this model within uh, or this mountain bike program within the confines of the Boys and Girls Club system because they know how to work with kids. They have the insurance. They have the facilities. They have, have the kids. They have the transportation to get the kids from the schools to the clubs. It's just, it's a number of things. And it just made a lot of sense. And, and next thing you know, here, here we are. And, and our goal is to con- continue to grow it and, and give kids more access to, to mountain bike opportunities and, and all of the benefits that, that come along with that. And they're vast. And I know, you know you and your, your listeners know that as well. So, yeah. Well, for those who aren't familiar with the boys and girls club as an organization, who are these kids? Like what, what is, what's kind of the mission of the boys and girls club outside of, you know, mountain biking and homework help? So I guess the mission of the Boys and Girls Club is technically, if you, if you read it off the charter, it's to enable all young people, uh, especially those who need it most to reach their full potential as productive, caring, responsible citizens. Hmm. That's, that's a nice mission statement. That's what's going to be on the websites. But I think more succinctly, it's an organization that exists to give kids opportunities. And in many cases, it's kids that are, uh, would be traditionally considered underserved. Uh, in terms of socioeconomic status and, and things of that nature. Um, demographics, they vary wildly and they, they kind of mirror their local communities, right? Um, and so, you know, if you're talking about a boys and girls club in downtown Atlanta compared to a boys and girls club in rural, um, you know, Alabama, it could look very differently. But, um, you know, some trends that I have seen carry across for some of the clubs would be you know, 50, 60 ish percent, uh, single parent families mm-hmm. between 50 and 90% of kids in particular organizations, uh, might be on free and reduced lunch programs. Okay. Wow. Ethnicity, it varies wildly, you know, it just depends on, uh, on, on where the club's located. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's about helping kids and giving kids opportunities to be successful. Um, they really focus on education character development, sports and activities. So like mountain biking falls very much sort of within the physical recreation component of a boys and girls club. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, substance abuse prevention, healthy habits, healthy lifestyles. That's, that's sort of the last tier. So, you know, something like mountain biking, it, it, uh, 
it has a lot of ancillary, even though it might fit more neatly, I guess, under the sports and recreation banner, there are all kinds of ancillary benefits to it, you know, in terms of health, healthy lifestyles. And then, okay, well, because I've actually, I've detoxed from, from the screen for, for, you know, that I've been sitting in front, in front of all day. Now I can focus to do my reading homework or my history homework or my math homework. Right. Um, we, we just really found that, uh, it, it is super helpful in, creating a, a more well-rounded experience for, for a child. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. When you're talking about sort of how this whole idea got rolling um, and talking about the pump track, you know, I was, I was really nodding along with you because uh, here where I live during this, you know, coronavirus lockdown, some local kids in our neighborhood built a pump track. It's, Probably calling it a pump track, that might be a little generous, but yeah. you know, they made, they made some little jumps and berms and it's more like a horseshoe pattern and, and they, they didn't have permission. They did it in a local park, uh, which, you know, we don't advise, but <laughs> it was incredible to see just all the kids like showing up there and, and just riding it and kids like all ages, you know, there's kids on, on those little scoot bikes, like they don't even have pedals, like two and three year old kids are rolling around along with, you know, there's high school kids there. You know, we would see, we would see people, you know, adults on road bikes or hybrid bikes kind of come by and check it out. And, and, you know, they would all stop and be like, Whoa, that looks really cool. And to me, yeah, the pump track is like, I was just blown away by how, I don't know, just, just how it like brings so many people together and like it's, it's for everybody, which is, which is awesome. And like, so I, I'm not surprised at all to hear that this is, you know, what you guys found as well. I mean, that's, that seems like a pretty key part of the model. And yeah, it just is something that I guess kids are really into. Oh yeah. I mean, it just, it, it makes so much sense on so many levels. I'll give you a quick story. Uh, well, maybe more of an update, but so I, I got an email from Brian Dolan, uh, who's the CEO of, uh, the boys and girls clubs of Southeast Georgia. And they're, they're one of the clubs that we funded, right. And COVID every club's kind of handled how, how they've addressed this differently. But Brian, uh, is one of the clubs that we funded and they have a track and facility and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, he sent me an email and said, Hey, I just want to let you know, even though we've been shut down, uh, because bringing kids inside for programming with staff and all those things, it's, you know, there's, it's, that's a very nuanced issue. There's a lot going on there. Even though we've been shut down, we've been handing out meals, uh, to the kids. Uh, and, um, we have opened up the mountain bike track for an hour a day. And we feel like we can do that safely. You know, it's, it's very much sort of within the social distancing protocol, the way, way we're handling it. And, uh, 40 kids a day, he said, we're coming to ride, ride for that hour, uh, <laughs> when they picked up their lunch. And so it's, I just think that that kind of dovetails with your story about the, you know, the local kids building one in their, in their neighborhood. And it's an incredible outlet. And, um, you know, they, they get to have some, some fun, take some risk in a controlled environment, mm -hmm. uh, rather than taking some risks somewhere else where things might not be so controlled. <laughs> right. And, um, and that's reality for a lot of the kids that, that we serve in the boys and girls club model. But, um, you know, there's cycling is one of those things like you were talking about earlier. It's one of those things that's a lifelong skill. It is something that you, you can do from, from, 
five years old to 80 years old. And so many of our kids, especially here in the U.S., they're sort of funneled through this varsity athlete paradigm. And it's, uh, you know, what happens to uh, the kid that, you know, didn't make the cut on the baseball team or the soccer team or, or whatever else. And so from our end, in terms of Boys and Girls Club programming, it just made so much sense. It made incredible sense to have a non-traditional sport like this that, um, you know, is is exciting, it's engaging, but at the same time, you're getting uh, immense cardiovascular benefits. You're getting increased focus in school, um, you know, psychological benefits. I, I, I could get into one story, and this is a little heart, heartbreaking. I don't, I, I don't want to get too deep into the details, but um, we had one particular child who uh, years ago was was very highly medicated and was raised by his grandparents, and he really bought into the cycling program, so much so that he was typically the way we would run it is, you know, certain age groups get access to the track and to the, the riding is is uh, that's a block on their schedule for the day, right? And this particular kid loved it so much that he asked for basically an extra block. Hey, can I ride with the older kids during this period? And we accommodated him. And typically, you know, that's it's not something we do. But um, long story short, uh, he lost uh, a lot of weight. He uh, His doctors reduced his medication. His grandfather came one day, and I'll never forget this. He had tears in his eyes, and he literally said, this this bike program has, has changed and and." potentially saved his life and uh it's just it's powerful stuff and you know in many cases these are kids that um would probably not have access to something like this you know i mean if you think about mountain biking or cycling in general it's you know there there's a certain socioeconomic group that's typically depend that that uh participates in it right and and so if your parents don't do that or your uncle or your friends or whatever, the chances of you getting plugged in are they're relatively small. Um, and, and through this model, we're exposing kids to mountain biking that in many cases would, would most likely not ever have that opportunity and they wouldn't get that exposure. And um, it's just something that it's really exciting and we're really proud of and, and, and we see it on the kids' faces when we, you know, when we have uh, mountain bike days and events, and all of a sudden when we go load them up to to go to a trail system, it's a big deal. It's an event, you know. They're excited, and and uh, they'll talk about it all week, and and just the smiles that you get from it, and um, you know, I just can't help but think we're we're doing kind of our part in in. Uh, the Boys and Girls Club and, and the Scayola Foundation to help create lifelong cyclists. Um, the the namesake of the foundation was uh, Carlo Scayola. That was a, he was the father, sort of the patriarch of the family, and he was actually Italian. And he was not a not a uh, necessarily a mountain biker, but he was a road cyclist. And but just a passion for cycling. And you see it so many times when somebody gets introduced into the into the sport, whether it's road biking, mountain biking, whatever it is. And you start to realize, hey, there are levels to this thing. And, you know, I can go climb that mountain on this bike or I can do this downhill descent or I can, you know, it just cycling is one of those things that um, I, I think it engages people where they are. 
but at the same time gives them opportunities to stretch themselves and grow themselves and, and to experience some discomfort and to work through that discomfort and learn, learn about who you really are on the inside. And, uh, and I think you can do that more so in cycling than you can in a lot of sports. And, um, it's just something we're really proud to be able to participate in and help with. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I was, I was going to ask you, you know, the benefits compared to other sports programs, but I, th- I think you covered it. I mean, cycling is unique in a lot of ways and, and it is one of those things that can be a lifelong sport. You know, you, if you play football as a kid, like, you know, by the time you're an adult, it's, it's kind of hard to find, you know, a group of people that want to get out and play football. But, uh, you know, you can, you can always mountain bike by yourself or with small group or big group, whatever you want. That's right. You could be an extrovert. You could be an introvert. It doesn't matter. But, you know, for, for most folks, uh, if you're talking about something like football, for most people that ends at 18, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe if you're elite, it might end at 21 or 22, you know, playing in college. But that's yeah. 99% of the people that have ever played a down of football. They're done by 21 or 22, where cycling is something you can carry on the rest of your life. And I'm not hating on traditional sports uh, at all. I, I did those as well. And, and I think that's probably part of the reason I can appreciate cycling as much as I do, because um, I've done those things too. But uh, I, I was a college athlete. I wrestled in college. And uh but it, it's just it, there's a very finite time that you can participate in those things, and and um, and not everybody can do it. You know, if you don't have X amount of athleticism, or if if the person in your position in front of you is is you know the next Michael Jordan or or whatever it is, um, you know, kind of back to what I was saying just a minute ago. I think cycling is one of those things that meets you where you are, but then at the same time still allows you to grow. And, you know, you see, you look at the hundred mile races and, and those things. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people aren't hitting their peaks and that stuff until their late thirties or forties, you know, and, and so you can develop, you know, uh, majority of your life, you can work, work to develop on that stuff. And it's, uh, age group racing and, and, and all those things. There's, there's always a, you know, another benchmark to, to work towards. And it's, it's very, I guess, relative to where you are at the time. And that's, that's one of the reasons we, we're so excited about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, what, I mean, what do the kids think about mountain biking though, especially those who are, you know, have had more exposure to like ball sports and things like that. Like when, the, when given the choice, are they like excited about it? Are they like skeptical, you know, like, why would I want to do this? Or, or that looks hard or, or, or are they just excited? Are they like, wow, yes, I get it. Yeah. So culturally, in terms of preferences, I guess one of the biggest things that I've noticed is that, that kids don't have bikes and don't ride bikes in general like they used to. Right. So when when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, everybody in the neighborhood had a bike. It was transportation. It was the first taste of freedom. You know, <laughs> right. when you get that first bike, your world expands. The neighborhood gets bigger. Your friend group gets bigger. Um, you know, you can you can go play play games with the kids the next neighborhood over or whatever it is. And that's not the case today. I will never forget the first time. And I've seen, I've seen many of them at this point, but the first time I saw a 16 or 17 year old, uh, at one of our boys and girls clubs that did not know how to ride a bike. And I couldn't oh, wow. believe it. It was, yeah. Oh yeah. And that, it's, that's prevalent. And, um, it was one of those things that was like, uh, you know, this, that's like walking or breathing or, <laughs> or, 
uh, you know, breathing air, drinking water. I just, you know, I couldn't believe it. But, um, you know, I think there are a couple factors at play there. I think culturally kids are different now than they were then. They can do a lot of their social inter- interaction through a cell phone, through a screen, through video games, et cetera, et cetera. I think uh, some of the kids that we are having, that we have in our boys and girls clubs, I think some of them live in neighborhoods where it might not necessarily be safe to ride. Uh, mom and dad might not want them outside traveling the streets. I think, you know, lack of access in terms of, you know, maybe mom and dad can't necessarily afford to buy a bike for them. I think that's, that's probably reality too. But, um, you know, it's not just with cycling. We notice that kids today, they don't, go get driver's licenses. You know, they're, they're not doing that at 16 years old. Whereas, you know, everybody I knew back when I was 16, it was a minute that the DMV opened and just culturally, culturally it's different. Right. Um, So much of their interaction can be had through social media and those things. So they don't, they don't have to be transported someplace. They don't need that transportation access Hmm. to, to have that social interaction. Right. But, um, and so I say all that to say the responses are varied uh, when some when a kid is first sort of met with it, um, especially like the first time we take them out to a, a trail system mm-hmm. and we go from riding, you know, uh, as large as our facility is, um, it, you know, to go from sort of a manicured BMX pump track slash hybrid out to even the mildest mountain bike park where, you know, your your shortest loop, we'll just say, is three and a half miles. Um that's a very daunting thing for a, for an eight year old, three and a half miles. Oh my goodness. You know, that's, that's further than it is to the store. I can't right. imagine something like that. And, and so, um, this is what we find it. it and it, it kind of dovetails on what we were saying earlier in terms of kids get to reach, they get to push towards those limits. They get to push through those limits. And every time they do, their confidence grows, their experience grows, their, you know, their, their, um, their love of cycling and mountain biking in general, it grows once they realize, Hey, if I push up through this, this, you know, if I hurt a little bit to climb this hill, well, then I get to enjoy the downhill on the, on the, on the backside. Right. Right. And, and, and Hey, maybe this hill that feels really big here on our facility, like on our boys and girls club property, is is pretty much nothing when I get to this mountain bike park, even the even the flattest, mildest one, right? And so, uh, you know, in their minds, in many cases, uh, you know, basically an inner inner city mountain bike park is that's a wilderness experience. For mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a point to point riding on the Pinhoti. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's that type of a thing, right? And um, and so I, I I've yet to see any kid that has been exposed to the program that has said, no, I don't like this. And three months later have the same opinion. Yeah. Not a single kid. And, uh, you know, from, and we try and have some skills features on our, on our facilities as much as possible. Um, like teeter totters and skinnies and, and those things. And so, uh, you know, a teeter totter can be a pretty daunting thing to, to an eight year old. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that foot and a half, two feet off the ground, it might as well be 20 if you're, <laughs> if you're seven, eight years old. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you're trying to coach them through it and say, Hey, speed's your friend here. The only way that you're going to have a bad time on this thing is if, if, if we don't make it all the way up the teeter totter to the other side to where it's going to fall. 
Because as soon as it falls, you get to roll off and, and be the hero, right? But if you, you've got to have some courage. You gotta, you know, you gotta, gotta get outside of your comfort zone on this because you're going to want to hit it easy. And that's, 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 it might be intuitive, but you're, you're not going to have the response that you want from that. You're not going to get the success that you want from it. And so just moving kids through the process on something as simple as rolling over a teeter totter, a little 18 inch teeter totter. It does immense things for their self-confidence and, and, you know, their, their ability to push themselves and, and take risk. And, um, um, and I think that's part of the reason they like it so much. And it's, like I said earlier, it's in a, you know, a pretty controlled environment. We've got, you know, 18 inches of mulch under it. And if, <laughs> if somebody does fall, maybe we get a little bump or a bruise, but for the most part, we're not having serious injuries and those yeah. types of things. It's, uh, um, it's, it's more about, you know, sort of the, the managing that internal risk and that maybe that little voice in our head that says, Oh, it's scary. I don't want to do it. And, and kind of battling back with the, well, you know, I, I can do it. I've, I've got to try. I've got to, you know, I've got, yeah. to, I've got to push myself a little bit. And whether that's climbing a hill, uh, that you, that makes your legs hurt and your lungs hurt or whether that's, you know, doing a little drop in off of a berm on a user created trail that they made on, on one of our facilities, it's, it's all those things. And so, uh, you know, it, 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 there's something there for all of them. And, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, it, it, mountain biking, cycling, once again, it, it kind of meets you where you are and then you get to grow from there. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said too, about, you know, climbing a hill and then getting to enjoy the descent on the other side. I mean, that's such a perfect metaphor for life in general, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, put in the hard work so you can enjoy life, you know, later or at some point. I mean, just your day, just get through your day, you know, right? Like you got to go to work and then when you're off of work, like you can have fun and be satisfied that you worked hard and, you know, enjoy the fruits of your labor. And that's right. And that, that goes along with, I mean, the kind of the message that, that, that we push to the kids is it pretty much mirrors exactly what you said and, and like to share with them. Hey, there's not much in life where you're going to have, there's not much valuable that you're going to get that you don't have to work hard for, you know? And, and, and if you want that juice, you got to put in the squeeze, but the juice <laughs> is worth the squeeze. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, through your experience and in, in working with the Scaola Foundation, what do, what have you found, or like, what's sort of the the emphasis? Is it on building accessible trails uh, at the facilities, or getting the the equipment that the kids need? Like, can you have one without the other, or is one need like greater than the other in these communities that you serve? Yes. Yeah, so every club's different, right? Um, you know, we might have a club that has uh, a really large sorbet chapter uh, in close proximity, and they're willing to sort of help construct the facility. Uh, we might have a club that has uh, a really strong bike shop, and they're willing to maybe get the bikes donated at cost. Um, so everyone's different, and we try not to, you know, micromanage that process too much. Um, but we know this isn't cheap, right? And so from in our minds, it's a sizable grant. Typically, our grantees, they're going to receive somewhere in the neighborhood of $25,000. Um, and they can use that for, you know, having the trail built, buying bikes, whatever it is that they need to do to make the program a viable program. And, um, 
you know, our goal is that uh, we have enough of a facility on site that the kids can ride for an hour and not get bored. That's that's really the goal. Um, and that can be accomplished. You'd be amazed in, uh, you know, how small of a piece of land is required for that. I mean, we, we can get that done in a half an acre. It's certainly an acre. Um, you know, you, you, you pair together, um, you know, a walking track or a perimeter track or something where, uh, the kids can get some flat pedal space in too. Uh, I, I think having that time trial component there is, I think that's a big deal. You know, that's, that's, uh, it's not just about the rollers and the berms. It's about, it's about being able to push yourself against the clock or against somebody else on the clock, your buddy on the clock. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a part of it too. Um, you know, but, but it's both, right. We've got to have equipment. We've got to have facilities and, and, and our goal through this more so than anything is daily access to riding for the kids. Um, you know, having a bike, uh, trail system close is great, but for our kids in the boys and girls club, we want them to be able to ride every day, you know, weather permitting. And, and so we've got to have on-site facilities and we got to have, have decent bikes. Our, our standard for the bikes is we want bike shop quality bikes. We want bikes that are serviceable. Um, because repairs, that's part of the deal, right? Like you, if you have a hundred kids or 150 kids cycling through those bikes, typically 15, 20 bikes is, is what most clubs buy. Um, but if you have 150 kids riding those things five days a week, you're going to have repairs that need to, that need to be done. Um, you know, we really try and, and be strategic about pulling in a sort of chapter and a bike shop to try and help, um, be sort of the, the godparents to the program, if you will. Um, those two pieces are critical, but, uh, you know, to answer your question, yeah, both, we've got to have good facilities and we've got to have, have, you know, quality bikes for the kids to ride because that's, at the end of the day, those two things are, they're going to be pretty significant drivers in the type of experience the kids have. Yeah. Are the kids involved at all in, in maintaining the bikes? Yeah. And so every, like I say, every club is different and, and everybody kind of has their own protocols, but we have, you know, some, some clubs that's part of the daily process. So you'll literally check out your bike and your helmet. Like you're checking out a library book. They'll have a checklist that you work through in terms of checking the air pressure, you know, checking the seat height, um, you know, things that I guess, you know, if you, if you've been cycling for a while, you might take, take for granted, but, uh, our kids, they're not going to know those things if we don't teach them. Right. Um, seat, seat heights, one of those that it's, it's a constant battle, especially with the younger kids trying to, trying to get them to buy into that, that part of it. But, um, yes. So maintenance is, is definitely part of it. We've, we've seen, uh, some clubs use it as a teaching tool for physics, talking about gearing ratios and, and shifting and, you know, workloads and those things. Um, you know, like, like I said, I was a wrestler in college. I, I took, uh, geology. They didn't, they didn't let me in the uh, physics class, but there, there are a lot of, uh, uh, math and science lessons that you can extrapolate from a bike. And, and we've seen clubs do that as well. So yeah, we, I mean, we, we've even seen, uh, more of a social component, like, Hey, um, you know, we have to take care of our bikes the same way we would take care of our neighborhoods. You know, if 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 uh, so if one particular group is neglecting the bikes, then then that's going to impact another group. You know, I've I've heard lessons in terms of, of of that as well. So I think the what you can learn from from uh, the maintenance end and and just the program end in general, I think it's it's pretty vast and and there there are connections there to 
from everything to, uh, you know, money management to, to work in a job, you name it. Um, there's a lot that can be talked through a mountain bike program. Yeah. Super cool. So you kind of mentioned earlier in the conversation, your hometown, Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, where the mountain bike community has been able to build out a pretty substantial network of trails over the last five to 10 years. Tell us a little bit more about the community there and, and what's going on in the mountain bike scene. Yeah. So I lived in Dalton for about 10 years and that's really where my, uh, my, my strongest ties are now. Uh, I still have, uh, personally, I have a business that's based out of there too, even though I'm, I've moved back to Chattanooga, but, um, yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're, are amazing. There's world-class single track, in my opinion, in, in both of those communities. Mm-hmm. In terms of what's being built that's new, I know Northwest Georgia Sorba is, I think they're working on something called Buzzard's Roost right now. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, that's the chapter that I'm, I'm a member of. I've got a six-year-old now, so I'm not quite as involved as, as I was, you know, 10 years ago. But, um, you know, maintenance of, of the stuff that we already have, we've already got just treasures you know we have pearls with uh the snake creek gap time trial people come from all over the all over north america to ride that thing i want to say last year we had people from um from australia that that rode and uh and i was listening to uh uh one of your shows a while back uh the guy in california i want to say his name was greg 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 williams is that right yeah Um, yeah and you know talking about economic impact and stuff that that the trail systems have on local communities. I can tell you firsthand that like the entire city of Dalton is full, fully aware of the economic impact <laughs> of mountain biking just because of that snake Creek gap time trial. Yeah. Um, it used to be the first January and February and uh, March, uh, the uh, January, the first Saturday of each of those months. Now I think they've backed it off to two, it's, uh, I think it's just February and March now, but, uh, they had over 500 riders. So you've got to assume, you know, at least one, maybe at least double that probably in terms of folks that, that actually show up and stay in Dalton those weekends. And, you know, if you're talking about a, a town of 30,000 people, which is what downtown Dalton is, and all of a sudden you have a thousand tourists pop in for a weekend, uh, that's a big deal. And, um, Anyway, I got got a little sidetracked there, but uh, yeah, Snake Creek. I mean, yeah, I've I've raced that one, and yeah, I mean, it's always just incredible to see all the volunteers and people that show up. I mean, I imagine a lot of them are not even mountain bikers. I mean, they're just people in the community who who, like you said, they they understand and appreciate you know sort of the impact that mountain biking has, and and they want to you know use that in a positive way to impact the community and. Yeah, it's always just just really cool to see stuff like that happening. Oh yeah, I mean you see you see folks from the Kiwanis Club and the and the Rotary <laughs> Club that show up to help and facilitate and volunteer during that local high schools. I mean we've actually sent uh, Boys and Girls Club kids out there, kids that were participants in the mountain bike program have have gone and volunteered at, at the Snake Creek Gap and and the Boys and Girls Club actually for a number of years they. Um, would let Sorba, Northwest Georgia Sorba, use the uh, their buses to sh- shuttle riders oh, cool. to the uh, to the starting point. So you know, very much a symbiotic relationship between the Sorba chapters and the Boys and Girls Club, and then obviously the Scale of Foundation too. So, yeah. Well, 
you know, it sounds like your dad sort of got you started biking at an early age, and, and now you have a six-year-old of your own. So how do you see sort of mountain biking playing out for the next generation and sort of how how you'll, you know, how you see your kids embracing it or, or, or not? So he's fiercely independent, and, uh, <laughs> and orange is his favorite color. So he has uh, a, a shiny new orange trek, and, and we've done – numerous kind of trips out to try and try and get a styled in on the bike and we're not there yet but we have uh it is on our list of goals that he has taped up onto his wall for for uh for the year but you know he's gotten in pretty heavy to some baseball stuff and so i'm trying to kind of facilitate and nurture that but after college i really got into adventure racing and uh we were uh, doing some 24-hour races and, and those types of things and, and traveling all over. And I have in my mind that one day I really loved that. It was one of my favorite things I've done. I mean, and you get a, you get a lot of time on the bike in adventure racing, a lot of time. And um, I have it in my mind that one day, you know, and he's 15, 16, 17 years old, we're going we're gonna to maybe – break off a couple adventure races a year and that we'll be able to do some of that together. So that's kind of my hope. But, um, you know, I, I just, I have a feeling that, that he's probably going to be like most of the kids at the boys and girls club, as long as I keep bumping him into it and bumping him into it and taking him to some races here and there and watching some on TV and, and taking him to local trails with me. I got a feeling before, before long, it's going to stick. It's, it's pretty much impossible for it not to. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting with kids. I mean, they're right. They're all different. And yeah, some of them are, are just really into it on their own. Other ones are not. And, you know, for those, if you push them, then they resist it even more. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like everybody's got to, got to figure out their own way. I found, found with my own son, you know, if I can get him to watch like a, you know, five minute YouTube shred it with, with people doing rad stuff on bikes, then he's really jazzed. He wants to go out and, and do it himself for a little bit. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's really cool to see. I'm going to take your advice on that. I'm going to, I'm going to do some, <laughs> some of that this week. <laughs> right. Power of YouTube. That's uh, right. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are hearing this and, and are really, interested in knowing how they can help out or how they can be involved in uh, maybe the scale up uh, foundation uh, programs specifically or just in general. So, so what's like some action steps for people to take? Yeah. Action steps. Uh, I think first off would be to visit our, our new website. It's pedal up.org P E D A L U P.org. Okay. Um, and then you can email me directly. It's just Jason J A S O N at pedal up.org. Um, this is what we're looking for and what I need. And I guess part of the reason I reached out to you, uh, is I need Sorba chapters that have an interest in kind of fostering, uh, one of these programs at the local boys and girls club near them. And, um, and, and so if you're a member of a Sorba chapter or know someone who is, and you think you might have a boys and girls club in your, in your area, reach out to me or reach out to them. And, uh, and tell them about, about this grant opportunity. Like I said, we typically we're trying to do at least four a year. Um, and it's, it's up to about $25,000 per grant. So we can make something happen. Uh, we still have one or two slots available for this year, as a matter of fact. Oh, cool. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that's what we need. We need, we need folks, uh, you know, mountain biking culture. It's very unique. It's certainly in most cases, it doesn't have a lot of crossover with boys and girls club culture. 
So we need local SORBA chapters to take an interest in, in these young people and this particular program and say, hey, you know, this is, this is going to be a great way to put some kids on mountain bikes that probably otherwise would never have that opportunity. And, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of time. Typically, one or two work days a year on site is all it needs to maintain. Um, and just some, you know, time and love and care, meeting with the kids, telling them how to take a turn, you know, telling them how to break properly. Um, same thing with the staff at the Boys and Girls Club. That's, that's a big part of the interaction is kind of coaching the staff up on how to coach the kids up. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of that to, to get them at a point where they can, uh, you know, really have some fun with the bikes and the facilities. So that, that's what we're after. That's what we're looking for. It's awareness at this point. Um, if you can get in touch with me and, and, and or get in touch with local Sorba chapter or local Boys and Girls Club, um, we can probably figure out a way to make something happen. And that's, that's what we want to do. We want more kids on bikes, uh, more days. That's what we're after. Cool. And can folks make individual financial contributions as well, or or is that a hundred percent? And that would go directly to the Boys and Girls Club, and which whichever one is in your community, which is great because that means your dollar is staying in your backyard. Um, we we are not in the business of uh, of uh, receiving uh, grants right now or donations. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the business of giving them. So. <laughs> We're, nice. we're in the grant grant making business, and and so we're not asking for donations. We're just asking you to help us give donations. So mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty easy sell in that yeah. regard. Um, but yeah, and and so that's what happens uh, a lot of times is we'll start a new program. Let's say in Cleveland, Tennessee, where we have two now, and um, uh, or Bradley County and Polk County uh, areas in Tennessee, and so we have two uh, clubs up there that are running the mountain bike program. And, and then they'll get donations from local cyclists to help fund it in perpetuity. Our oh, gift cool. is to help get it started, right? To get the facility, to get the bikes, to, um, you know, get the things that we need to get the program in place and get mm-hmm. it moving forward. And then ideally the local cyclist in the community and the local donors in the community will see the value of the program, the value of, of, uh, you know, introducing mountain biking to these young people, and then they'll help carry the, the annual operations forward. And, and once you have the facility and the bikes and all that kind of stuff, it, you know, the, the cost to sort of maintain at that point is, is greatly reduced after mm-hmm. you've, you've had the tracks built and the initial bike spot and, and those types of things. So, yeah, very cool. Well, Jason, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about the pedal up program and for all that you're doing to, to support it. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity. Love your show. Uh, thanks to all your listeners out there. It's, it's a real blessing for you to give us the opportunity to come talk with you today. Thank you. Great. Well, like Jason said, you can learn more at pedalup.org and we'll have that link for you in the show notes. That's all I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.